I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, this is Owen Jones. Welcome to the podcast. Today, Paul Krugman, who is a Nobel Prize winning economist and a New York Times uh, columnist, of course, as well. He's one of the most famous uh, public intellectuals on the face of the earth. And we have a we have a lot to chat about, about zombies. That's something to do with his new book, which we'll talk about. Uh, about, about the way the right in politics in the United States and elsewhere is based on these deceit and lies and what the progressives do about that. What's going on in the United States at the moment? Uh, what hopes is there for Biden doing some sort of new deal? Uh, what's the role of the progressive wing of the US Democrats? We talk about the economy. We talk about austerity. We talk about loads of stuff. Obviously, very informative and educational. He's a Nobel Prize winning economist. So he's, I would say, pretty knowledgeable. Uh, we don't agree on on various things like Bernie Sanders, but we talk about that as well. Uh, it's, it's a very informative chat. Uh, if you want to help us offer an alternative to the right-wing media and, and expand, please do support us on patreon.com forward slash owenjones84. Uh, you can help us come up with ideas of what we talk about and who we talk to or in the supporter function in the description if you give us five stars uh, i'll love you forever uh, on itunes and you'll help encourage other people to listen to the show which is great with all of that this is paul crookman uh paul it's, it's a massive honor to have you nobel prize winner uh new york times best-selling columnists uh one of the world's great public intellectuals so a huge honor to have you here today uh, uh, great to be on. What can I say? Uh, that, that's it. That's fine. Uh, arguing with zombies. So this is your updated new book. Let's have a little chat um, talking about zombies. We're gonna, I'm, I'm a big fan of the zombie film genre. Uh, but the thing about zombies, as we know, is uh, they may be dead, but they're very, very hard to actually kill off. That's right. And, and so let, go for it. No, I'm going to say, I mean, this is a, I stole this, right? I mean, this is a, I was actually, there was a, a public policy paper about Canadian healthcare, of all things, but it was talking about all the basically the, the myths that Americans have about Cana- Canadian healthcare, and you know they, there are a lot of things that people, uh, to the extent they're aware that the you know that our northern neighbor even exists, they have a lot of things they believe which are not true, have been shown to be not true, but they just keep going on, and so this came up with the this paper came up with the phrase zombie ideas, and it it applies perfectly to a lot of our political, certainly our policy debate, which is that there's, we don't have a whole lot of argument between defensible good faith positions. What we mostly have is arguments where one side is saying things that are have been proved false again and again, and yet they just keep on shambling along, eating people's brains. And so zombie ideas has become one of my, you know, think, something that I, I think about a lot. And, and unfortunately, I'd, I'd like to be arguing with real people, but mostly I find myself arguing with zombies. So you, you come up with some striking examples. There's no such thing as the climate emergency, that social security is a problem, that universal healthcare isn't affordable. 
How yeah. is it possible for us, both both you and I, regard these as self-evidently untrue, just striking mendacious lies and all the rest of it, but they are persistent and they are widespread and they are loud? Yeah. So there are two things at least going on. It could be more than two. It, this could turn into a Monty Python routine. But the um, there's the – first of all, a lot of the zombie lies are kept going because – it's in somebody's interest. You know, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. So if you think about you know, climate, uh, uh, climate denial, climate change denial, uh, there have been some attempts to figure out you know, what proportion of the studies that purport to show that it's not happening or it's not as big a deal or whatever are actually supported by fossil fuel interests. And the answer is to a first approximation, 100%. It's all about interest group. Uh, pe people have a stake and people in, in the rest of the public not understanding uh, what the reality is. That's also true for wire tax, you know, belief in the magic of tax cuts for the rich. So it's, there's a financial interest. But there's also a fair bit of, there's stuff that sounds hard-headed and sensible, and it's very difficult to get rid of it. So I, I, a lot of this... The, the essays in this book, in, in Arts with Zombies, are about um, beliefs that debt is a public debt is an existential threat, and we must slash spending even in the midst of high unemployment. And um, a lot of that is coming not because it's not just because it's in some people's interest to have you believe that, but because it sounds sensible. It sounds like, well, you know, isn't the government like a household where the you know the public is having to tighten its belt, so the government should tighten its belt too, which is all wrong but is kind of appeals to stuff to popular perception and also appeals to certain kinds of elite opinion. So, so the, there are a lot of, you know, it would be great if considered, uh, considered looks at the evidence really drove public debate, but a lot of the time it's just not a lot of the time it's, it's us versus the zombies. And what we're talking about is, is structural, isn't it? We're talking about entrenched material interests. So, I mean, there was a study a few years ago in 2014 by uh, Princeton University and Northwestern uh, University professor Martin Gillens and Pro Benjamin Page. And they looked, catchy uh, a phrase, but multivariant analysis indicates that economic yeah. elites and organized groups representing business interests have substantial independent impacts on U.S. government policy. What they were talking about is a democracy had been subverted and turned into an oligarchy, and therefore yeah. the economic interests were so powerful and strong, they had a stranglehold over policy in Washington, ensuring that regardless of whether this was good for American society as a whole, it wasn't, it was good for them. And that's the problem, isn't it? In terms of having a rational debate about which ideas are good or bad, when you have strong entrenched economic interests in a corrupted democracy, it doesn't become about a debate, does it? It's a struggle. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, it's a large part. I think it's, it, there is a, a sort of reductionism which says it's all about the 1% dominated debate. And it's not something, some of the zombies are supported by other kinds of <clears throat> uh, misconceptions, but it's, that that's certainly a very large part of it. And it's really important, I think, to also to appreciate that it's not simply raw corruption, uh, people being paid to advocate things, views that are, are demonstrably not true, although there's also a lot of that, much more than we'd like to acknowledge. But it's also the subtler stuff. I mean, I, um, I, I've, been, I've been in meetings with you know, senior policymakers where there are also people from the financial sector. 
And you got to say, look, uh, you know, some you know, bankers are often a lot more impressive than academics. They're, they, there's a lot of, of belief that simply because somebody is rich and powerful, that that person must know what they're talking about. Um, and then there's also, and then there's in, in between stuff. There's soft corruption. There's the revolving door. The, um, as, as somebody, I think I quote in the book, but said about thinking about the European uh, embrace of austerity in the face of mass unemployment. Suppose you're a politician in a small country. What are you going to do later? What's your future career? It's not actually probably as prime minister, it's actually going to Davos and giving speeches about the importance of making hard choices. So there's this there, there's variety of channels through which uh, bad ideas that serve the interests of, of a, a very small wealthy elite uh, persist no matter how often you show that they're not, they're not right. When you talk about your four rules for writing as a public intellectual, the final one is don't hold back from exposing dishonest motives, something I strongly right. agree with. But often when people talk about this, is they people say this is ad hominem, this is you know yeah. playing the man, not the ball, and so on and so forth. The reason I'm actually interested in this, and I'd be fascinated by your thoughts, is that what we're talking, you know, in, in a political debate, we would both agree the existential threat of the climate emergency is just an objective right. fact. It's an existential threat to humanity. Right. Um, and if the facts, if facts went out in political debate, that just wouldn't be contested. But of course, that's not how political debate works. And what George Lakoff, the political linguist, looks at is how the right often rely on stories, which are quite emotional, right. and progressives often rely on facts. But as there's this quote, fighting emotion with logic is like bringing a calculator to a knife fight. So for a long time in Britain under George Osborne, when they were slashing the welfare state, they would go on about benefit fraud. Now, benefit fraud is about 0.7% of social security spending. Right. But on the front page of a right-wing newspaper, they'd show a scrounger, so-called, with 50 kids, a mansion made out of widescreen television sets, all these kind of extreme, you know, and extrapolate. And we'd come back with our statistics. Right. That's not how humans work. People don't work on that level because we're not machines. So doesn't that put us in an automatic disadvantage? The right will use stories and emotions which connect with people, even if they're often dishonest. And we just come back with facts that just don't, just whether we like it or not, do not cut through with people. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that there is there is some inherent imbalance there because um, it's, it's the old line, facts have a well-known liberal bias. Um, and the, um, and you can you can make fun. There was the march for science, and there was actually apparently a chant. You know, what do we want? Evidence based policy. When do we want it? After peer review, and you know that is not that is not a way to get mass public support. On the other hand, of course, you can't just give up on being facts and evidence based. Uh, but you can certainly make an effort to to tell more stories. And the uh, and, and I'm I'm a big believer in um, in the importance of punchy writing, uh, getting, getting stuff across with, with phrases that, that people can understand. You don't want to actually be wrong, but you want to make it comprehensible. You don't want it to be dry because that just rolls off the backs of a lot of people. Um, and look for the stories. I mean, I, I think that we're getting the center left in the United States, which I'm obviously part of, I think is getting better at that. We're getting better at, at talking about you know, countering the, the the bums on welfare, the welfare queen stuff, with stories about children uh, who just 
aren't getting enough to eat and aren't getting health care. Uh, we're getting better also, I think, a little bit at, at um, a little bit, a little bit of class warfare uh, is not, don't want it to be your, your everything that you talk about, but a little bit of, of pointing out, you know, who are the people who benefit from this and are they really deserving, I think is, is important. So, um, and yeah, and when people are clearly um, in it, when people are clearly hired guns, when they're, they're clearly advocating a position because that's a living, uh, I don't think we should refrain from saying that. You don't want to be indiscriminate. You know, there are some people uh, I have real arguments real right now as, as we're doing this, we're having an argument about it. Should we be worried about inflation from the rescue plan and the people on the other side um, are, I disagree with, with them. And I, I, I can possibly imagine that there's some funny stuff going, but you know, that that's a debate that should be conducted in terms of facts and figures and, and, and logic. But when it's, when it's not a real debate, then I don't think it's a good idea to pretend that you're having a real debate. And you do want to say, look, this is not, this is not a serious argument. This is somebody who is, uh, who couldn't be persuaded because his, um, his salary depends upon his, his not being persuaded. You spoke there about class conflict, conflict, and, you know, as the billionaire Warren Buffett put it a few years ago, there's class warfare, all right, but it's my class, the rich class that's making war yeah. and we're, we're winning. And one of the things you, you write about is if you ask questions such as what's happening to income inequality, and obviously the United States is not just scarred, but defined by that kind of inequality, you will be denounced by the right as an American. I mean, to what extent do you think that's a legacy of the Red Scares, one that followed in the 20s after the Russian Revolution, and also McCarthyism that didn't just obviously push a lot of the more radical left out of American public life, including in the labor movement and help cripple the labor movement in lots of states in the United States in particular, but also cowed lots. It was used to cow quite moderate liberals. And that when you talk about basic things like class in, in inequality, you're portrayed as un-American. Is, is that kind of entrenched because of those red scares? Well, I think it's actually, it certainly has been the case. And uh, it, that's a very, very long history of any, anything that would make people's lives better is denounced as communism, leftism. Uh, um, and you saw, obviously, a lot of that in, in recent political stuff in the United States. Uh, so you know, we just had an absolutely crucial pair of runoff elections in the state of Georgia uh, with these two very moderately center-left Democrats, uh, and the Republicans were all. It was all oh, they're they're Marxists, they're supporters of terrorists, and um, so that was showing that we this stuff goes on. On the other hand, they, the Democrats won, so this is I think that it's a tactic that is losing a fair bit of its effectiveness. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it, you can't really. The odd thing was when the Cold War was at its height, um, U.S. policy was actually a lot less plutocratic because there was a, I think in, in large part because there was a sense that you needed to have some solidarity to face the, the, the actual threat of the Soviet Union. The, the really sharp rightward turn came after the Cold War was over. But the, um, but the, uh, it's still, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the thing that you need to realize in all of these things is that the people who are defending class interests will reach for whatever will work. They'll call you a communist. They'll suggest that 
that you're supporting immorality. It, it, there, there seem to be no limits, and they'll even go about it. There's a lot of attempts to foster class envy if someone advocating policies that will help the working class also turns out to be personally rich. They'll go and say, oh, look at this rich guy. Who is he to be telling you? you know, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty much, uh, there's an unscrupulousness about it, which again comes back to the, we're not having real arguments. We're, this is uh, uh, people actually trying to, to do some good and make sense of stuff versus the zombies. Indeed, and I often say that if you're progressive, if you're too young, they call you naive. If you're too old, they call you a dinosaur. Right. If you're too poor, they accuse you of envy. And if you're too rich, they call you a hypocrite. So you, you literally can never win. And in terms of race, and you write about race, um, how much, I mean, it's interesting with Donald Trump because Donald Trump just spoke in the most vulgar, crude way, generally, right. including about racism. But the Republicans, particularly after the civil rights movement, I mean, LBJ, the Democratic president, famously when he signed the civil rights legislation, said he'd signed away the South for a generation, and that was prescient, in fact, more than a generation in, in many Southern yeah. states. Um, and, uh, you know, Republican president presidential nominees from then on always used dog whistle language. Welfare queens, you mentioned, yeah. that was always, people knew, they meant black people, that's what they were talking about. Of course. And, and to turn particularly blue-collar white Americans against black, poor black Americans. And, and Barack Obama once infamously in 2008 alluded to this. He said, uh, this became a big scandal at the time about working class voters in old industrial towns. They get bitter. They cling to guns or religion or antipathy to people who don't like them or anti-immigrant sentiment and so on. I mean, how much is racism in the United States? Racism is not specific to the United States, but the, the particular type of, you know, the legacy of slavery in particular how much is that decisive in allowing the Republicans to get large sections of working class Americans to vote against their rational economic interests? Oh, it's, it's overwhelming. I mean, the, the, the American difference, the reason that the United States doesn't look like other advanced countries, the reason we don't have universal health care, unlike everybody else, the reason that we spend a third as much as a share of, of national income on support for families, as opposed to elderly and so on is um is all of that is is totally because of our of the legacy of slavery and the and in, you know in in a lot of countries um the when you talk about a program of a social safety net it's because people the man and the person in the street says looks at someone who's in misfortune and thinks they're but for the grace of god go i and in the united states they look at it and say well it's one of them um, and so the the race is central. Now it, it's not. It, we need to be clear that it's not hundred. You know, nothing is is hundred percent. The um, the uh, the twenty twenty election, although the Democrats did win, was a little bit was significantly less of a, a blowout than many people expected, and a lot of that was because some of the non-white voters actually voted for Trump, voted for Republicans because the economy was booming uh, in, in 2019. Um, and so there, there is certainly some stuff that goes on beyond, that's not just about race, but uh, yeah, race is nothing, nothing about the United States makes sense uh, unless you factor in the role of race. Um, and yeah, it, it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, people start asking, you know, is politician X a racist? It doesn't matter. 
What matters is that race has been used as a wedge to divide people who should be working together to, for, for policies that serve their interests. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Looking today, uh, Joe Biden's economic package yeah. um you've described this as actually it's not a stimulus it's disaster relief yeah i'm just interested just just to flesh that out but also there's a big debate big struggle within the democrats at the moment it's not on the issue of checks to american citizens who right. gets the checks and actually some democrats pushing for less generous checks than that donald trump offered to americans so do you just want to just talk about where you stand on that particular struggle is there a danger that if the democrats after offering, in that case, less uh, tangible change than that offered by a white nationalist right. uh, reactionary Republican, what, do, what does that potentially mean for the Democrats, the 2022 or 2024 elections? Yeah, I will mention, by the way, that a, a couple of hours after we record this, I am actually going to be debating Larry Summers on the uh, right. on the issue of, of the uh, the Biden program and whether it's too big. So uh, that's it. It's this is a, a genuine debate. You know, Larry is uh, as. Uh, what somebody somebody once said about Albert Einstein, what he what Professor Einstein has said is not entirely stupid. So what what Larry is saying is not entirely stupid. Uh, I think he's wrong, but it's this is the kind of debate that I wish we always had. Um, so here we go. I mean the uh, the story about the Biden program, the Democratic program, is that this is not a conventional recession. We we're in a we have we're still about ten million jobs down from where we should be, uh, but that's um, it's not because there isn't enough spending, there isn't enough purchasing power. It's because lots of stuff is still in de facto lockdown, whether it's officially lockdown or not. Uh, sensible people are not dining indoors right now, and that's a, things like that that are clearly high risk or a lot of a lot of business. Um, the question, the the main purpose of spending a bunch of money now is to get us through this until we have widespread vaccination and it becomes safe to to go back to normal life. Um, and that's several things. It's uh, a lot of direct spending on actually fighting the pandemic, vaccination, spending money to keep schools open. And that's, all, that's a pretty substantial chunk of money, which really needs to be spent. It's hard to argue that, that that's something we shouldn't be doing. A second big piece is... Um, supporting the incomes of people who've been hit hard. So the United States normally has an extremely stingy and incomplete system of unemployment benefits. And what we did for a few, 
part of last year, but then let drop. And what, what we will be doing again, assuming this stuff goes through, is to provide supplemental checks to a broader range of people supporting people's incomes. And then there's the checks to individuals, uh, the, the checks that are not conditional. You don't have to be unemployed, just every adult or every adult below a certain income threshold gets them. Um, and those are, they're, they're, uh, I don't think there's going to be a problem with them being $1,400, not 2000 But there's, that's the point part, which is economically the least compelling case. Uh, because a lot of the people receiving checks have not actually been hurt economically by the pandemic. So why are we giving them money? And part of the answer is it's, uh, I've been calling it belt and suspenders. There's a bunch of people who are not benefiting from the t more targeted programs. There are just problems with the coverage. So throwing a bit of money out in general, some of that money will land on people who really need it. And, um, a lot of it won't, but then that part, the parts that's not going to people who really need it, is probably also harmless. Probably won't actually do a lot to it, probably people go into people's bank accounts. But that's put it all together, and it's a, it's a really big program. Um, and the thing about it is, what's kind of remarkable is in the midst of this horrific, divided U.S. Uh, political scene where where um, two-thirds of self-identified Republicans think based on absolutely nothing that the election was stolen and all of that, this, the, the basic outlines of the Democratic Relief Program are overwhelmingly popular. So we're in a situation now where actually doing the kinds of things that, that people like me have been advocating all along is in fact also an extremely popular thing. So uh, for once, I mean, I, I look at this and say this is a situation where for once the the logical reasonable thing is actually prevailing so of course given that there are some uh democratic leaning wonks who are against it because that's uh that that's that's what my side of the political spectrum is like you've often called for a new new deal yeah um, now joe biden is not by tradition from the progressive end of the democrats however franklin roosevelt by background wasn't a particularly uh, from the, a, a, a raging progressive either. And L, LBJ was a conservative Texan uh, Democrat. I mean, I think there's a critique about what LBJ did with the Great Society in terms of what funded those right. Great Society programs because uh, under Kennedy and then hit the corporation tax was cut and so on. But conversely, Barack Obama was seen as the more progressive candidate right. when he stood in 2008 against Clinton but actually for a lot of people who wanted transformational change proved to be a disappointment. What do you think is going to happen with Joe Biden? Do you think there's an opportunity for some sort of new deal to emerge from, from this, notwithstanding the fact right. in the Senate, there's an, the Democrats have a narrow majority, but there's one conservative Democratic senator, which could put a block on things. Uh, do you think that will happen? Do you think it's possible that, you know, against the background of Joe Biden, he'll follow a kind of Roosevelt sort of trajectory? Yeah, I mean... I mean, one thing I th I hope we've learned is to not judge politicians by how they look. I mean, uh, and I don't just mean race, although that was also I think part of the reason people assumed that Obama was was a big progressive was because he wasn't white. And um, and but if you had actually tracked what he was saying, he was clearly a very moderate Democrat in terms of his actual policies. Uh, um, the uh, now Biden is actually does have a history of being on the centrist 
side, but he also has a history of being in the middle of his party. And uh, the middle of his party has moved somewhat to the left, um, and so has Biden. But I think the main thing is the situation now. We have a, uh, we have obvious vast needs. We have a, probably a window of opportunity to really do something. Um, it helps that uh, the that a lot of the uh, conservative arguments against government activism have failed so drastically. All of the claims that austerity was going to lead to great surges in confidence. Uh, you know, uh, to one of my favorite, uh, it, you know, things I'm proud of was coining the term "belief in the confidence theory." That has been proved wrong. Fears that government borrowing would lead to catastrophe have been proved wrong. So you have a, a kind of opportunity in the sense that people are not as afraid of doing progressive things now as they were in the past. And um, um, and there's also, the, in a way, the failures of Barack Obama have set the stage for a much more aggressive policy because now it's commonplace. Uh, it's almost universal to say what only a few of us were saying back in 2009, which was that Obama was too cautious and squandered his opportunity by being too cautious. And nobody, I think even the, conservative Democrats are wary of that. And so Biden is prepared to go big. And, uh, and the, the, you know, the, the, now the New Deal stuff, what he's proposing now is still, the first round is, is disaster relief. It is a response to the pandemic. And the, the next phase, we have no idea whether the political backing will be there or not. But yeah, I mean, I guess for, for, bad reasons. I thought Green New Deal was a pretty good phrase, but now people don't. So Biden is calling it build back better, but it's basically the same thing. And I think we have a chance to to really make some significant changes. I mean, when the Republicans, the Republican strategy certainly in the last generation has been to eschew bipartisan consensus. They, they Their view is just go in hard, don't right. compromise. Um, even if, you know, the Democrats in the have the, the White House, we will treat them as often as illegitimate. We will spread conspiracy theories like the birth of conspiracy. And the Democrats tend to go, let's be bipartisan. Let's work together. And that's what Obama did. Do you think the Democrats have learned from that? Do you think they've oh. learned that the Republicans, by disposition, they've, that has proved quite a successful strategy? Uh, I mean, do you think the Democrats now have, have finally realized oh, this? Yeah. Making the same mistakes. Oh, sure. I mean, it's, it, it's, that's not even in question. I mean, it, I have to say, you look at the, uh, first of all, everybody, everybody on the Democratic side now says that. And everybody on the Democratic side is aware that you know, Republicans, aside from all of the claiming that Biden is illegitimate and all of that, that they, they ran through a, a huge tax cut, largely for corporations, um, on a party line vote using every trick to bypass the rules. Uh, so why not... Uh, do the same thing on behalf of, of stronger policies uh, and of, of good policies. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, it's maybe for UK uh, audience, you wouldn't quite have as much appreciation of the per people involved, but if it's kind of startling to see Joe Biden as a great progressive, um, it's even more startling for those of us who've been in the mix to see Chuck Schumer, the, uh, the new Senate majority leader from New York uh, as a, a big progressive and as somebody who's prepared to play hardball with Republicans, that's not 
the reputation that he has is not, I think, who he was, but now we've all kind of learned. I mean, I, I was pretty uh, belligerent from the beginning because I had, being more in the in the depths of of the policy debate, I had a better sense of the of the sheer cynicism of the Republican side. But now I think that's pretty much universally understood among Democrats. Uh, just a couple of other things or so. Um, Europe now, after the financial crash when yeah. pro austerity governments came to power in Britain and across and obviously in the eurozone. You became something of a crotch for those of supposed austerity. We would say as Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Grugman argues, partly because we were we were relatively right. isolated before 2015 in British public life. The Labour Party wasn't making a, a compelling, coherent alternative to uh, the coalition government's austerity offensive. Right. And obviously within the Eurozone, you had well, I mean, we saw Greece at the most extreme, the other periphery peripheral countries as well, they suffered terribly as Germany exported austerity across the Eurozone. Do you, th I mean, do you think when we're talking about zombies, do you think that zombie has been slain in Europe? Because I'm not so confident. And do you think the danger is in Europe now in the aftermath of the pandemic, we'll be hearing all again about deficits, about debt to GDP ratios. Uh, you know, the likes of George Osborne will still say he's been vindicated despite all the evidence to the contrary. What do you think? Do you think those zombies in Europe remain rampant? Or do you think, are you more optimistic about Europe? No, I'm, I mean, I think Europe is not going to be quite the same as it was. But um, I do have the sense that the... Uh, the austerity advocates have not been as thoroughly discredited in Europe as they were in the United States. That uh, Germany is still pretty German, a little bit less so than it used to be, but still pretty much. Um, that the uh, the European Commission hasn't really had a reckoning with its errors. It's interesting, some other institutions, the International Monetary Fund uh, sounds like you know, big spending progressives these days. The OECD sounds like big spending progressives these days, but the commission doesn't, the German political class doesn't, and those still carry a lot of weight. Um, and in, in, in a peculiar way, uh, the fact that the European um, center-right is still center-right and has not gone completely, obviously, crazy the way that the U.S. Republican Party has um, means that in this case, bad economic ideas probably still have more traction in Europe. Um, so we'll have to see. I mean, it's it's going to be. I, I'm I'm concerned about it. I think that the the possibility of a lot of destructive retrenchment is is certainly there, but it's going to depend on a lot of. I, I mean, if somebody can explain to me what exactly is happening in Italy right now, uh, I I just don't. I can't actually parse it uh, politically. Um, so how this is going to play out, I don't know. It's not going to be as bad. I mean, that that's kind of universal elite consensus in favor of um, a fiscal austerity in the face of uh, mass unemployment that we had in 2012, 2013. I hope that we won't, I don't think we're going to see that again, but it doesn't mean that we're actually going to see good policy. Yeah, I mean, I think Italy is an instructive example of what happens when a left implodes in a country and, it, and and various often very ugly forms of right-wing populism filled it and bizarre like the five-star movement very bizarre just just another thing i mean this isn't a, a, a criticism i'm just interested in your theory of change the theory of change yeah. always find it very interesting because 
you know, you've offered, you've been a very strong, I mean, you're an extremely eloquent and precise and pithy writer, which is rare. Um, and you've, you've written very incisive critiques of centrist Democrats, that, including Obama, their, their lack of radical ambition. But politically, I mean, you supported Clinton in 2008, 2016, very critical of Bernie Sanders. And I suppose, why? Why didn't you look at, say, Bernie Sanders and think, I'm calling for a new New Deal. This is the guy, actually, who's offering a very transformative political agenda. Yeah. He's inspiring a lot of younger people. His polling shows he's a very popular guy, as American politicians go. One, some polls the most popular. Why not invest in him as a political vehicle? Um, well, there are two different things. One is that, uh, that something like Bernie Sanders um, was some of what he advocates I actually don't think is a good idea. I mean, he, there, or um, there have been times when, or, but, but I think that's actually really secondary. There's not a whole lot of, of issues. The problem with, with it, it was, well, look, um, uh, first, first you have to win. And the fact of the matter is that, you know, that, that, uh, this last election in the United States was alarmingly close not in the popular vote, but unfortunately that's not how we work. And it, it really would have taken only a, a, a few score thousand votes to be different uh, for us to be in a complete nightmare, probably with the collapse of American democracy. And Bernie Sanders would not have won. Joe Biden did win. Um, and he won in part because he came across as a regular guy and so on. I think that's unfortunately what you needed. And, and I also had reasonable faith that we could that that's that democrats who were talking moderate centrist would in fact pursue pretty progressive policies which appears to be what's happening so there there is a there's always a trade-off and and then the specific, not just electoral stuff but in terms of strategy so um health care a lot of arguing with zombies is about health care um and the uh the Really, the left of the Democratic Party in the United States is adamant that we must go to a single-payer system, which on the policy, I actually agree, is if, if we ask about how do, what systems work, um, single-payer tends to be cheaper and better than a decentralized system. Actually, in many ways, actual socialized medicine, NHS, is seems in many ways to, to be the best. It's extremely cost-effective, and the care is, on average, just as good as anything else. But it's not going to happen, not right away anyway. If To have a political strategy that depends upon going to the 160 million Americans who have private health insurance and say, uh, we're going to replace that with something completely different. Trust us. It'll be better. That's a losing political strategy. So it's not a question. And it, where the the economic analysis comes in is that that if you actually look at across systems, it turns out there are multiple routes to universal health care. You can do it NHS style. You can do it Canadian single payer style, but you can also do a decentralized system like the Swiss. And they all work. And so the insistence on purity, that taking private insurance completely out of the mix becomes a litmus test. That's something that I opposed. Not because I not because I thought that the, you know, that the 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 left position on what the healthcare system should look like was wrong, but because I thought, look, um, getting 
getting it, it actually enacted is what's important. And it doesn't have to be perfect as long as it's much better than what we currently have. I, mean, I suppose my last couple of connected questions, you're a busy man, uh, is would you at least, I mean, we don't, obviously there's no counterfactual of Bernie Sanders in another universe right. of what happened. However, would you at least credit, because you said, you know, Joe Biden is very much a man of the center of the party in the center of the Democrats. Oh, yeah. left. So would you credit at least Bernie Sanders plus AOC, the squad in, the energy is decisive yeah. in shifting the center of gravity of the Democrats. But but just on that, and, and the link to that, about single payer, I mean, we've got the National Health Service, of course, in this country, which is frequently demonized in uh, the United States, but in this country, whether you vote conservative or Labour. You know, I walk around the streets of this country, and there aren't flags in our windows. There are instead these massive people who have got their kids to draw pictures in celebration of the NHS. Oh, yeah. There are millions of them all over the country. One of the reasons our vaccination program is the one thing the government have not messed up is it's been delivered through the National Health Service, which is... So shouldn't the argument be... I know you're saying about, well, the political realities and what it will be up against. But given, I mean, we can see the NHS. You know, if you're right-wing conservative, it's political death to go against the NHS. A Tory once said... Nigel Lawson, Tory Chancellor in the 80s. I know. The closest the English have to a religion. Now, why isn't it, you know, a courageous political thing to do in talking about facts and slaying zombies would just be straight with the American people. This is the best healthcare system. They spend half as, you know, we're spending double on an inefficient system. That's, That's not actually helping millions of Americans. Why not just make that argument? So those two questions, the left have shifted AOCs, Bernie Sanders, but also why not just make a courageous argument for some Oh, I mean, actually, I'm I'm quite happy. I I would have <clears throat> if uh, it I would have been horrified, terrified if Bernie Sanders had been the nominee. But I would also have done all I could to say, look, he's actually not scary. So you know, I I think he would have lost, but I would have done my well. As a Times columnist, I'm not officially allowed to endorse anybody, but you know where I stand. And it, so, um, but the uh, but I'm entirely happy with Sanders as chairman of the Senate Budget Committee. Um, we've had a long time in which the in which conservative Democrats have had a lot of sway and have pulled the party to the right. And I think it's actually quite helpful that we have the other side. And I, I have to say, one of the the uh, simultaneously funny and uh, and also kind of horrifying things about the American political scene is watching um, the com- repeated attempts on the part of the right to portray a- AOC as being somehow stupid. And boy, I mean, she's clearly smarter than, uh, than the great majority of Republicans in Congress, probably smarter than the majority of America. I mean, this is, this is not a, this is, you, you may or may not agree with her policy stuff, but clearly this is not coming from a place of ignorance. Um, so I'm fine with it. It's just a question. It really was a question of how, how it's a theory of change question. And I thought that the party could not lead with its most progressive people, its most progressive ideas um, in a general election, but I'm happy to see those aired. And I think I, you know, if there's, there's a question of, of, of priorities. I, I think if you actually go through everything I've written, I've always said that 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 single payer is is a better system than than trying to find a role for private insurance. Um, and I've certainly said I think that that 
true, you know, there's something, an NHS type system has a lot of advantages, but I don't spend a lot of time saying that because I have a sense of where we're going to go. It's a little bit like uh, there is a you know, drastic, on climate policy, um, the, the climate policy is going to have to be more than just root canal, eat your spinach, you know, uh, reduce emissions and, and never mind the cost. It has to be packaged with other stuff if it's going to happen. So it, it's a, it's a, it's a practical judgment. So not, not a, uh, not, not something that, that reflects my view that this is all crazy stuff. It's not. And, um, and if I don't write a lot about the ideals, it's because I guess you, you need to target your advocacy a little bit. Um, now the question of, uh, I guess I, I, I kind of lost the second piece of that. No, Sorry. No, no, that was it. That was it. No, you were answering. The, the first was about the US left succeeding in shifting the center of gravity within Democrats. And the other was on the, on, on the issue of single yeah. payer. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think that the, the uh, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the one thing that was unforgivable uh, in the United States four years ago was the people who refused to support Hillary Clinton because she wasn't sufficiently uh, purist on her progressive cred. Um, and that, you know, that was, it was close enough that that was actually, those defections were decisive. Lots of things were decisive because it was so close, but the, um, but that didn't, everybody came together in 2020. It wasn't, it, yeah. that but didn't, didn't happen. Evidence, so, didn't the evidence show that, I mean, back in 2008, you got a phenomenon that wasn't discussed of, people who voted for Clinton in the Democratic primaries, he then voted for John McCain. And that percentage wasn't that different from, from the same phenomenon. I mean, it's the same in 1980. I remember studying this. People who voted for uh, Ted Kennedy's challenge to Jimmy Carter, some of them ended up voting for Ronald Reagan. Like, it's just yeah, a small phenomenon. But there really wasn't much of that. And I mean, there may have been some. Of course, 2008 wasn't close. So, you know, in this case, it was just uh, the, the uh, Bernie or bust wing uh, you know, we couldn't afford that. Um, couldn't afford that in any of the recent elections. Now, but you know, what, now that that uh, the Democrats have this uh, working majority, um, I'm perfectly happy to see the uh, the progressive wing of the party playing a big role in setting the agenda. I think that's um, you know we can we can argue if if we actually were in a situation where we were well clear of having to worry about uh, an anti-democratic party regaining power and destroying our democracy, um, then maybe we could have some internal arguments and some, on some of them I'd be on the left and some of them I'd be on the right. But you know, where we are now, it's, I think it's, it's perfectly fine to have the uh, people who are pretty strong, who, who, are, who are advocating an even more ambitious agenda than than Joe Biden is pursuing to have them playing a role in the party, if only to to provide a counterbalance to the people who are still wanting us to to go back to the old stuff. But you know, it's uh, um, I think we're it. Look, I mean, the, the reality is is that the um, for the moment, at least, the United States is in this position where the the, the centrist who was a big disappointment to supporters of Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren is actually delivering uh, an agenda that is incredibly ambitious, 
not purist, but incredibly ambitious. So it's all good as, as long as it, it happens. And just very finally on that, see if we can end on a happy note or, or not. Uh, I mean, some would say you're in an interregnum now. 2022, the Republicans under their Trumpian spell are going to come roaring back. They'll get a, a, a less absurd caricature uh, who's more dangerous as a demagogue yeah. in 2024. Uh, and then that's it. The American Republic is toast. Well, it's certainly a possibility. It's something that terrifies uh, me, ter terrifies I think anybody who's paying attention. Um, and what can you do about it? I mean, the point is not to uh, you know, be clear-eyed about that danger, but also to ask, what what can you do? And the, the most important thing I would say is um, deliver. That's that's the reason uh, over and above the narrow economics, the reasons to have a really ambitious, uh, generous package right now is partly to say, be able to say to voters, here's look, look here's what you get. Here's what we can do. Um, restore full employment as quickly as possible. Get get this uh, uh, have some uh, kitchen table. Uh, stuff to go along with the other things. The and um, uh, it's you know, arguably voters shouldn't be should care much more about the survival of democracy than they care about getting fourteen hundred dollar checks in the mail. But the reality is, it's not. That's not exactly how it works. And uh, so, uh, at what will happen? You know, God knows. The uh, I actually am. am I'm not sure even that we it's the it's the smarter uh version of Trump we need to worry about it's it's even even if it's Trump himself again or or someone who's clearly awful nonetheless there's there's a lot of people out there who are perfectly okay who in fact want uh, uh really you know, bad people and given the the fact that most of the most of the public is is not focused on issues of the survival of the republic it's entirely possible that that we'll we'll lose it all so you know provide the goods um the it's at this point to be a pure technocrat and say well let's just figure out the optimal policy and not think about the politics that's a that's actually a deeply irresponsible position to hold right now i think that's a a very uh very striking warning to end the interview on that was absolutely fascinating Paul. and even when i agree with you or not always a fascinating and eloquent must read writer um and this book is no exception uh in these unsettling and often very traumatizing times so thank you so so much for uh, spending you. a bit of time with us and uh, i know i know many people will be reading reading your book okay well thank you very much cheers for listening everyone I hope you enjoyed that chat. And if you do want to help us get even bigger and better, then all your support is appreciated, either in the supporter function in the description or patreon.com forward slash owenjones84, where you will have a say over what we do and who we talk to. Um, please give us five stars on our iTunes to help get the message across. More people will listen, which is, you know, the plan. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I'll speak to you soon.